This is History 2311, Week 3B, The Progressives. I didn't talk about the music last time uh, in my lecture on 1898 and American Empire, but the music I played last time was The Stars and Stripes Forever, uh, a march composed in 1896 by John Philip Sousa. Sousa was the director of the U.S. Marine Corps marching band and kind of the king of the 19th century military march. The music you heard this time, just now, was The Entertainer by an African-American composer and band leader, Scott Joplin. Now, Joplin wrote The Entertainer in 1902, so just six years later than Stars and Stripes Forever. But to me, they sound decades apart. It's like you can hear the turn of the century. What makes Joplin's Entertainer sound like it comes from a completely different world than Seuss's Stars and Stripes is the syncopated rhythm or the ragged rhythm which gave the music that Joplin made its name, ragtime. A syncopated rhythm is where you kind of shift the emphasis off the regular one, two, three, four beat pattern, either by delaying a beat or by stressing a note that's not on the beat. And when you do that, it kind of makes the music bounce or swing. It's the difference between John Philip Sousa, dun, 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 and Scott Joplin's dee 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 that syncopated rhythm. It changes it from music to march to, to music to dance to. It changes it, I would say, from 19th century music to 20th century music. And we have now stepped into the 20th century. Last week, I talked to you about the Gilded Age, which remember is a label for the era in US history from really the 1870s to around the turn of the century. Today, I wanna to talk about what's often called the Progressive Era, which is a label from around 1890 to around 1920. So two things about these labels. First of all, they overlap. Second, they contradict one another. Gilded Age is a derogatory label. It's like an insult. Progressive Era is praise, it's a compliment. And I think we have to be careful about both of these labels. The late 19th century wasn't all corruption covered by a layer of false gold. And the early 20th century certainly wasn't all progressive, not by our modern definition of progressive and not even by the early 20th century's definition of progressive. So instead of declaring this whole period, the progressive era, I think it's more useful to think of the progressives as a specific group of people, a generation of reformers who tried to address the challenges of their day, industrialization, urbanization, corruption, etc. So I'm not saying that everybody who lived in this period was progressive, nor am I saying that all of the so-called progressives were progressive by our standards. But the progressives are a really important and interesting group of people, generation of people. And one of the things that's most interesting about this moment, about this movement, is that to a great extent, it was really driven by the energy and efforts and concerns of American women. The progressives weren't only women, but women led this movement. 
So what I want to do today is try to give you a sense of who the progressives were. And I'm going to start, as I often do, with the story of one individual. And she is one of my favorite figures in American history, the activist and reformer and social worker Jane Addams. This is Jane Addams in later life. She's the, the woman on the right standing in the car campaigning for votes for women. And there's kind of two questions hovering over this lecture. The first is, how did women, American women, how did they change American politics? How did they change America itself before they could even vote? And the second more universal question is, can individuals change history? This is, this is a question I think about and that kind of lurks behind all of my lectures. Can individuals change history? And if so, when and how? So I want you to think about both of those questions as you watch this lecture, but we're gonna start with Jane Addams, Citizen Jane. Jane Addams was born in 1860, the year the Civil War began, in Cedarville, Illinois. Her father, uh, John Hoy Adams, was a prominent businessman. I mean, he wasn't like Rockefeller rich or Carnegie rich, but he was, he was probably one of the wealthier men in this little town of Cedarville, Illinois. He was very religious. He was an abolitionist opposed to slavery. He was actually one of the Illinois politicians who helped found the Republican Party. Before the Civil War, John Hoy Adams had been involved in the Underground Railroad. So he was helping to smuggle escaped slaves uh, to the North, to Canada. He was a good man, but not exactly democratic in his sensibilities. Here's a quote from his grandson saying, John Adams, only took advice from his own conscience. He didn't really care what the people wanted. Adams thought that he knew best and, and probably often he did know best, but when he knew best, he didn't wanna hear otherwise from the people he was helping. And right there I think is part of the paradox of the American progressive. Now, Jane Adams' mother died when she was just two years old and Jane grew up devoted to her father and the example he set of doing good in the world. When Jane was 17, she did something that no woman in her family had ever done. She went to college. For a previous generation of American women, this was not an option. Jane was one of the first generation of American women to go to college or university in large numbers. It was in the late 19th century that upper-class Americans started sending their daughters to university and the quality of the education that American women received improved immensely. In 1877, the year Jane was 17, a brand new women's university was opening in Massachusetts called Smith College. And Smith was doing something radical at the time. They were going to teach women exactly the same science, medicine, and math being taught at men's colleges. And they were going to offer their women students real degrees, bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, equal in difficulty and prestige to those earned by men. Jane visited Smith College in 1877 and she took and passed the entrance exams for the very first class at Smith College ever and had her heart set on going. But in the end, her father said, no, she couldn't go. He didn't think that Smith would be religious enough and he also thought it was too far away. He wanted her to stay close to home. So instead, Jane ended up going to Rockford Female Seminary, which was a very small, very pious women's religious college in Illinois. Here's a picture of Jane and her classmates in 1879. Jane's the one at the back with the umbrella. Uh, you can see how happy she was to be there. 
Jane did well at school. She, uh, she chafed under the religious discipline. She was something of a free thinker, but she took very seriously the education she received there, especially the doctrine of Christian usefulness. She took very seriously the idea that it was her duty to do good in the world, to make the world a better place. But then she graduated. If we were all in a room together, I would ask you a really hard question now. I would ask you, how many of you know what you're going to do with your life when you graduate? Jane Addams in her youth reminds me of many uh, young people I've known at Western and elsewhere. She wanted to do something with her education. She really wanted to do something of value with it to make the world a better place. But it was not at all clear that the world wanted that. This dumb diagram I'm showing you is supposed to be like inspirational in kind of a Pinteresty way uh, that that your goal in life, that you will find your purpose in life when you manage to hit the bullseye at the center of the Venn diagram of something you love, something you are great at, something the world needs and something the world will pay for. Jeez, I mean, that is a lot to ask. I don't envy anyone who thinks they have to thread that needle and find that magic purpose. Like, come on, it's okay, lower the stakes a little bit. Start with one of these circles. It's all right, muddle through. The rest will take care of itself. When she graduated from Rockford, Jane Addams confronted the paradox of women's education in the late 19th century. She was very smart, very capable and highly educated for the time. And the whole thrust of her education had always been about service to humanity, making the world a better place. But having received that education, now she discovered that nobody actually expected or wanted her to do anything with it. They just wanted her to come home and take care of her family. So I've now posted the primary source analysis assignment for you, where you're going to read uh, one of three primary sources and write a short essay analyzing it. One of your three choices is Jane Addams, uh, an essay uh, called The Subjective Necessity of Social Settlements or something like that. The title is a mouthful, but it's a good piece. And the key to it is Jane is writing about herself. She is writing about this problem. What should I do with my life? And in particular, why did I get this education? And, and why was I filled with this ambition to help the world, to do something for the world, if nobody really wanted me to do that? If my job as a young woman is just to get married and take care of a family? Because that's what most of Jane's classmates did. They, they graduated, they got married, they started families, and they put the moral philosophy and the ancient history and the natural science they had studied aside. Jane didn't want to get married, but she didn't know what she was to do. Jane's father, John Adams, died uh, in 1881 of appendicitis when Jane was 21. And suddenly, Jane's world and her choices shrank even more. Now, her inheritance actually made her financially independent. She could have, at, that, at age 21, gone to Smith College. She could have done lots of things. But family expectations made that impossible. Her family clearly expected her stepmother and her siblings and her extended family clearly expected that she would either get married or return home and take care of her family. So Jane went home and she tried to fulfill this role, but the, her response, the end result, actually something happened to her that feels quite contemporary. 
she sank into what today we had, we would diagnose as depression. Here's a quote from Jane's journal at age 22. She says she feels like a failure and she is in danger of self-pity. Her doctor told her that she was suffering from moral failure brought on by too much mental activity. Their doctor said, your problem is you think too much. So he banned her from reading books. He banned her from writing letters. He banned her from having visitors and he banned her from self-pity. Not exactly what we would prescribe today, but it was a different time. For the next few years, Jane was really kind of adrift. She hated herself for being useless, but she could not see what to do. She found an answer though on a trip to Europe in 1888. Doing a kind of grand tour of Europe, which was something that a lot of wealthy Americans did, Jane was stunned by the huge gulf between uh, the rich and the poor, between aristocratic wealth and beggars in the street. Now, of course, there was a big gap between rich and poor in the United States too, but maybe not in Cedarville, Illinois. Jane had never seen the extremes of wealth and poverty that she saw in London and Paris and Madrid. In London, England, Jane visited a place called Toynbee Hall, which was a new settlement house in London's East End. Settlement house was a place where students uh, from Oxford, generally wealthy, educated young men, moved into the East End, into the worst neighborhood in London, and lived there trying to learn about and help the poor. And this idea captured Jane's imagination, and suddenly she knew what she was going to do with her life. When Adams returned to the United States, she and her friend Ellen Gates Starr went to Chicago, and they found a big crumbling mansion in kind of the worst or poorest part of the city, a, a squalid south side neighborhood of tenements and factories. And they bought the house, and in 1889, uh, Adams and Starr moved in. I called Ellen Starr Jane's friend, really I should say partner. She was her partner both in founding Hull House and also very likely her romantic partner. Historians debate whether it's appropriate to call Jane Adams gay. Uh, she probably would not have used the word or called herself a lesbian, but by our standards today, I think she was. Certainly we know that she had really basically two long romantic relationships in her life, and both of them were with women. First with Ellen Starr, and then later in her life, a woman named Mary Rosett Smith, who Jane lived with for over 30 years. Jane's relationship with Starr, and then later her relationship with Mary Smith, was an example of what at the time people called Boston marriages, which was a colloquial term for when two women decided to live together, make house together in a kind of long-term committed relationship that might have been sexual, but wasn't always. And these were pretty common in the late 19th century and people really didn't think they were that remarkable. What was remarkable was for two upper-class, single, young, white women to move together unaccompanied into the slums of Chicago. This is Halsted Street, the street that Hull House was on. Uh, it was a very poor neighborhood in these years, um, a, a neighborhood filled with tenement buildings and recent immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. And it's not where you would expect a woman like Jane Addams to live, but that was the point. So Jane and Ellen moved into Hull House and they wanted to start doing things to help the people in the neighborhood they lived in. 
At first, there was a kind of a period of mistrust and miscommunication. All the Polish and Italian immigrants living in the neighborhood, you know, they did not know what to make of these uh, nice white ladies who came in and fixed the place up with fine furnishings and, and cut flowers and lace curtains, all just as fancy as if they were living in a rich neighborhood. And, and Jane and Ellen had a certain level of naivete about the people they were trying to help. They would do things like hold poetry readings or lectures about fine art and philosophy. And then they were disappointed when nobody from the neighborhood showed up. But Adam's philosophy was always to just ask people what they needed. And so she asked the people in the neighborhood, what can I do for you? What can we do for you? And there were things they could do for them. For instance, Hull House had running water, which many of the people in the neighborhood did not. So they started letting people come in to take baths and showers. Hull House started serving hot lunches. They started offering daycare and kindergarten. And this really impressed them to the women in the neighborhood who of course were all working women and had these children that it was difficult for them to take care of during the day. Over time, they started doing more and more things at Hull House. They started having English lessons for new immigrants, uh, typing classes, classes about how to get a job. They showed teenage mothers how to care for their babies. They gave women and children a place to stay, a shelter when their husbands got drunk and violent, and they found legal protection for victims of domestic abuse. They also hosted political lectures at Hull House. Hull House is one of the only places in Chicago where socialists and anarchists could give speeches, uh, but they also hosted conservatives and capitalists too. And they had entertainment, concerts, dances, parties, games. Even that focus on, you know, making things beautiful and nice was not entirely naive. It made a difference to the people who came to Hull House. There's a story at one of their sort of social gatherings. They had set out vases with cut roses and uh, an older Italian woman saw the roses and asked, how did you get those flowers to stay fresh all the way from Europe? Because this poor woman remembered the flowers back in Italy, but she had lived in Chicago for like six years and never seen fresh flowers. So she thought they just didn't grow in America. And people did start coming to the poetry readings and the lectures and the classes. And within a few years, something like 2000 people were visiting Hull House every week for one thing or another. And Hull House in Chicago was the start of like a whole settlement house movement. Other women and also men started similar houses in major cities all over the United States. And basically Jane Addams and Ellen Starr and others like them uh, invented the profession of modern social work in America. Here's a Hull House art class in the 20s and a theater class in the 30s. The theater class reminds me, this is kind of a tangent, but if you have any familiarity with like improv comedy in America, you, you certainly are aware of the Second City Theater. Maybe you've even taken an improv comedy class at some point. There was a woman who lived and worked at Hull House in the 1920s and 30s named Viola Spolin, and she played these theater games, these improv theater games with kids at Hull House. And Spolin's son, Paul Sills, ended up founding the Second City Theater Company. Second City is a nickname for Chicago, the second biggest city in the United States at the time. And Second City is kind of the taproot of like most of American comedy. Saturday Night Live, SCTV, and just about any sketch comedy comedians you can think of, it all flows out of Second City and it all began at Hull House. Anyway, that's not the point of my story, but I think it's kind of cool. 
If founding Hull House was all Jane Addams had done, it would be a good story, but it wouldn't explain why Addams became a national figure or why people call this the progressive era. Despite her kind of sentimental side, Jane Addams had a very logical, analytical mind. When confronted with a problem, she would try to reason out a practical solution. And this process pulled her from social work into urban politics. This began with the problem of garbage in the streets. The streets around Hull House were filled with garbage and rats. Here we see a dead horse in the 19th Ward in Chicago. In the good part of the city, garbage collectors in those days came three times a week. But in the 19th Ward, where Hull House was, they came once a month if you were lucky. Adams wanted to clean up the neighborhood, literally. She knew that the garbage collectors were private contractors hired by the city. So she went to the city government and complained uh, about the garbage collectors and kept complaining until they named her garbage inspector. This is probably just a way of getting her off their back, but they, they named her garbage inspector. They created this job where she would go around and see if the garbage collectors were actually doing their job, report on them if they weren't. Doing this brought Jane into conflict with the ward's alderman, a city politician, Johnny Powers, who was kind of a classic Chicago city politician ward boss, notoriously corrupt. He was a saloon owner with a powerful vote buying machine. And the garbage collecting contracts were patronage appointments. So this is the sort of appointments that, that 19th century politics was full of. You know, you promise me 250 Polish votes and I'll give you this garbage contract and we won't look too hard about how frequently the garbage gets collected. So as she came to understand that the problem was not just garbage collection, but this kind of corrupt political system, Adams and other Hull House residents started organizing on behalf of reform politicians to try and get Johnny Powers and people like him out of office. They never actually did get powers out of office, but they succeeded in electing a new reform mayor of Chicago. And the new mayor appointed Jane to a community improvement association that built parks and playgrounds, and then later to the Chicago Board of Education, where she worked to build new and better schools. Remember that women still couldn't vote in these years, but in this period, in the 1890s and early 1900s, more and more women were getting involved in politics despite not having the vote. Some of them were agitating for votes for women and Adams herself became a leader in the fight for women's suffrage, but she also always thought that that was just one small part of politics. Adams also organized for other causes, things like better education, better sanitation, worker safety regulation, consumer safety regulation. One of the things that troubled Adams and the other Hull House residents was child labor. A lot of immigrant women worked in sweatshops or did piecework at home, you know, sewing shirts for pennies a piece, and their children worked too. Kids as young as four or five were sewing 12 to 14 hours a day. And in other places they were working in textile mills and coal mines and so on. Florence Kelly, who's another young woman who came to live and work at Hull House, started an anti-sweatshop league. And in 1893, she got the Illinois state government to pass a law banning children under 14 from working in factories and sweatshops, and also limiting women and older children to an eight-hour workday. Kelly was ultimately appointed to be the chief factory inspector for the state of Illinois, and that made her the first woman in the United States to hold a statewide political office. 
And this is the trajectory of Adam's career and of progressivism in general. If you look at the words I've bolded on this slide, you see that Adam's political engagement started at the local scale, Hull House, the 19th Ward, local problems like garbage in the street, but inevitably trying to solve those problems pulled Jane and other progressives into city politics, Chicago, into state politics, Illinois, and ultimately into national and even international affairs. By the turn of the century, there was a whole movement of reform-minded or progressive politicians, and many had been elected at the city and state level. There were a number of progressive governors like John Altgeld in Illinois, uh, Bob LaFollette in Wisconsin, and Teddy Roosevelt in New York. And there were many more progressives at the state government and the city government level, dozens of progressive mayors and state senators and so on. But the real engine driving progressivism, the people doing the organization and the motivating and a lot of the grassroots legwork were women. This new generation of educated upper middle class women like Jane Addams who wanted to make the world a better place and were now finding an outlet to do so. In a lot of ways, the progressive movement is what happened when American women got tired of waiting for the vote and got involved in politics in other ways. So now I want to step back from Jane Addams and try and describe the progressive mind, progressive mindset thinking more generally. All of these people would be considered progressives. I've been using Jane Addams as my archetypal progressive, but you would get a different picture of the progressives if I told this same story using, say, Teddy Roosevelt, the first progressive president, or Ida Wells, who is an African-American journalist and feminist and civil rights crusader who fought lynching and helped found the NAACP. This group of people really shows the range of individuals and political views that could fit under the umbrella of progressivism. You've got Eugene Debs, who was a socialist, and Teddy Roosevelt, who was a lot of things, but not a socialist. You've got Ida Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois, African-American crusaders for Black civil rights. And you've got, again, Teddy Roosevelt and Margaret Sanger, people who were you know, kind of racist. So progressivism doesn't represent one single political view. It's more of a mindset, a mindset and a host of issues. Still, we can generalize about the progressives and some of the things they believed in. The progressives wanted to take action to make the world a better place. By and large, the progressives believed that problems could be solved, that things could be made better. And they had a lot of faith in government's ability to solve problems. They also believed in the common good. Unlike some socialists or labor radicals who saw the world as a struggle between different economic classes with opposed interests, most progressives had faith that if everybody looked at the issues calmly and rationally, some common good that served everyone could be found. And the progressives believed in science and management and experts. And that's kind of a contrast with today. Today, today a lot of us feel that experts are failing or have failed us. You know, it was economic experts that brought us the 2008 financial meltdown, and, and they have not done a great job of pulling us out. Foreign policy experts have not done a great job of defeating terrorism or bringing peace. Medical experts, well, you know, we might have a little more faith in medical experts in this dark winter of the pandemic, but, but that too, that kind of expertise is highly contested, especially in the United States. 
the world is hugely, hideously complex, and, and it's characteristic of life in you know, the 2020s that we don't have a ton of faith in experts, in professionals with special training to solve our problems. But the progressives did. And this era, the progressive era, built a lot of the institutions that people might be losing faith in today. Journalism, science, the university, the professions, modern medicine, all of these expert institutions were either created in this era we're talking about or took their modern form around this time. Another way to think about progressive reforms is, as I've been saying, the progressive movement was in a lot of ways a women's movement. And men at this time were still very hostile to women getting involved in politics, but women found they had just a little more space, a little more space to get involved in politics if they concentrated on what seemed like women's issues. And so they evolved a kind of maternal politics, that is politics that seemed to relate to motherhood. Many of the progressive era's innovations in public policy, the first tentative experiments with a kind of welfare state, grew out of the idea that the state had an obligation to protect women and children. And so things like laws providing for mothers' pensions, government aid to widowed mothers of young children were some of the first widespread government aid. Labor laws regulating the hours and working conditions of children and women were passed well before equivalent laws regulating hours or working conditions for men. And food and drug inspection, laws about health and urban sanitation, the birth control movement, uh, the prohibition of alcohol, all of these could be seen in a certain light as women's issues or as mother issues, as kind of won't somebody think of the children issues. And this was a doorway through which women could take a more active role in politics. Here's a list of characteristic progressive era reforms. Now, if you read all the way down the list, some of them might surprise you, or at least some of the things at the bottom of this list are not things that we would call progressive today. Because there was a dark side to progressivism, and I wanna talk about that now. The conservative journalist H.L. Mencken once said, talking about Teddy Roosevelt, that Roosevelt didn't believe in democracy, he just believed in government. And that's a lot like what I said before about Jane Addams's father. The progressives believed in experts, but they did not always believe in democracy. They did not always believe that the people knew what was good for them. They didn't always trust ordinary people to know what was best. And so there was always a tension in progressivism between social justice and social control. And the progressive answer to many problems was to make more rules, to control people. They were willing to use state power to coerce individual behavior. So many progressives, including Jane Addams, supported prohibition, outlawing alcohol. They campaigned against prostitution, against gambling, against dance halls. Many of them supported censorship of literature and the movies, this brand new medium. Some progressives, not Jane Addams, but others were believers, staunch believers in racial segregation. And to them, the Jim Crow segregation laws of the 1890s did not contradict the progressive movement. They were part of the progressive movement. They saw them as just one more way to control society, to maintain order. Whites over here, blacks over there. And progressives, many progressives also embraced forms of scientific racism and eugenics. Eugenics was or is a kind of cluster of pseudosciences, an effort to improve the genetic composition of the human race, uh, largely by encouraging the so-called fit 
to have more children and discouraging or actually preventing the unfit from having children. Here's a pro-eugenics rally in New York City in 1913. Look at these bozos. Eugenics was very popular and mainstream in the early 20th century. It took the form of anti-immigration laws, anti-miscegenation laws, that is laws preventing people of different, quote, races from marrying. It went so far as even the forcible sterilization of those judged disabled or with mental disability or even just thought to be immoral was widespread in the early 20th century and widely supported by many progressives. For them, this was just one more example of solving the problems of the 20th century by imposing greater social control. Progressivism came to the national level in 1901 with our friend Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt, as you recall, the hero of the Spanish-American War, became McKinley's vice president in 1900. But in September 1901, an anarchist named Leon Cholgosh shot and killed McKinley at the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, and Roosevelt became president. Jane Addams actually knew Cholgosh, the man who killed McKinley. He was one of these anarchists who sometimes came to Hull House. In fact, this is random, but Jane Addams also knew Charles Guiteau, the man who killed President Garfield back in 1880. He was just a friend of her family. So with McKinley's death, Theodore Roosevelt became the new president. And Roosevelt, who you know, was impetuous and energetic and, and obsessed with manliness and adventure and always looking for a new crusade, found his new crusade in progressivism. Roosevelt was not as radical or progressive as Jane Addams, but he was certainly more progressive than any previous president and willing to go farther than any previous president in reforming capitalism, using the state to try to solve the problems of the day. So Roosevelt famously used antitrust law to prosecute and break up some of the big corporate monopolies like Standard Oil. He regulated railroad rates. He passed the Food and Drug Act to police the quality of food and drugs. He created the national park system and set aside millions of acres of federal land as wildlife preserves. Here's a cartoon showing Roosevelt and Adams. And Roosevelt and Adams became friends and allies, somewhat unlikely allies. They were very different in temperament and there were many things on which they disagreed, but each was useful to the other, especially after Roosevelt left the White House in 1909. Roosevelt served two terms as president, or almost two terms as president, and did not run for re-election in 1908. Roosevelt's vice president, William Howard Taft, was elected in 1908, and Roosevelt left office thinking Taft would continue his policies. And this cartoon is Roosevelt leaving his baby, his baby policies that look like a little Roosevelt, to William Howard Taft, his, his vice president. But Taft was more conservative than Roosevelt. He proved not to be nearly as progressive as Roosevelt had been. And in the years after leaving office, Roosevelt was frustrated that Taft was not following up on his policies. Also, he just missed being president. And so in 1912, he came back and challenged Taft for the Republican nomination. He didn't win the Republican nomination. The conservative wing of the party backed Taft and defeated Roosevelt. So Roosevelt left the Republican party and launched an independent campaign as the head of a new party, the Progressive Party. And the platform of this new Progressive Party called for all the sorts of things that the progressives, progressive women in particular, had been fighting for. Child labor laws, eight hour day laws, a graduated income tax, and the progressives promised to give women the vote. 
When the new Progressive Party met in 1912 to nominate Roosevelt for president, they met in Chicago, which was not a coincidence, and Jane Addams was the keynote speaker. Addams actually nominated Roosevelt for president, and it was her, she received louder and longer applause even than him. Adams was by this point probably the most famous woman in America, and she was as much the face of the Progressive Party as Roosevelt was. In the partnership between Roosevelt and Adams, I think we can see the range of who the progressives were and also some of the disputes between them. Roosevelt, as we know, was a militarist and imperialist. He pushed relentlessly to extend American dominance as a new world power. Jane Adams was an anti-imperialist and a pacifist. Roosevelt was undeniably racist by our modern standards. He was a firm believer in the melting pot idea, the idea that immigrants could and should be Americanized, which did make him more progressive than some Americans at the time who believed that immigrants could not be absorbed into the American fabric. He was always quiet on the subject of African-Americans, whether they too could be assimilated in the American melting pot. Roosevelt did famously invite Booker T. Washington, African-American leader, civil rights leader, Booker T. Washington, to the White House to dine with him. He was the first president to dine with an African-American in the White House. But he never pressed for civil rights legislation for Blacks, for instance. Jane Addams was probably naive on racial issues at first, but she was converted in time to the anti-lynching movement to African-American civil rights by her work at Hull House. So there's a lot of differences between them, but what Adams and Roosevelt had in common was more a temperament, a way of looking at things, this progressive mindset than a specific political platform. Roosevelt and the progressives did not win the election of 1912. Roosevelt and Taft basically split the Republican vote, which led to the election of Democrat Woodrow Wilson. The Socialist Party under Eugene Debs actually got nearly a million votes in the election of 1912. There was a lot going on. So you remember this diagram, my, my terrible map with all these blobs from my lecture on Gilded Age politics. Uh, here's another way in which the Republican Party shifted uh, over time. In 1912, Roosevelt really split off this group of progressives and reformers uh, out of the Republican Party. So even though the progressives didn't win, what Roosevelt did succeed in doing was pulling progressives out of the Republican Party. And they were kind of orphaned for a few years, but many of them would end up in the Democratic Party eventually, especially after Teddy Roosevelt's cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, became Democratic candidate for president in 1932. But a much bigger blob of American voters was about to get the vote in 1920 with the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which gave women the right to vote. The victory of the suffrage movement, the movement for votes for women, which had gone, been going on for basically a century, was a great progressive victory. But it was also weirdly kind of an anticlimax. Many people had thought that once women got the vote, they would all vote as a block, that there would be this huge new progressive voting block that would transform American politics. But generally, once they got the vote, women did not transform American politics. It turned out that white middle-class women from Massachusetts voted a lot like white middle-class men from Massachusetts, and poor white women in Kentucky voted a lot like poor white men in Kentucky, and so on. Women were not, in fact, a monolithic voting block. But one point of today's lecture is how much American women achieved in politics before getting the vote. And not only Jane Addams, 
It's also Ida Wells fighting against lynching. Florence Kelly fighting for labor rights. Margaret Sanger fighting for birth control. Lillian Wald for health care. Although denied the vote, American women created a whole alternate political system of clubs and organizations and lobby groups. They broadened the meaning of politics in America and, and kind of elected themselves caretakers of the nation's well-being. These women took power without asking for it. They pushed themselves into the public sphere and remade it, entering the vanguard of social justice and social change. Thanks very much for watching. I'll see you on the internet. Mm -hmm.